Bonneau campaign is being run by a group called Fair Australia. It is importing Trump-style politics to Australia. It is post-truth. And its aim is to polarise. Its aim is to sow division in our, in our society by making false claims, including, providing, including that providing advice to government would somehow impact the fundamental democratic principle of one vote, one value, a claim designed to mislead. Well, that was Linda Burney, our Indigenous Affairs Minister, speaking at the National Press Club on Wednesday. But let's just examine what she's saying. When one group of people based on race can have the constitution changed so that they have a voice which other Australians do not, and if the advice of that group is not adhered to, that racial group has the exclusive right to appeal to the High Court, which can override the Parliament. Now, that surely is a distortion of the one vote, one value ethos of Australia. If the No campaign has made a claim that is untrue, uh, and it seems that what the No campaign led by Fair Australia is saying is entirely accurate, instead of bringing Donald Trump into the debate about the voice, Linda Burney should try and mount an argument uh, rather than just mount slurs. The attempts that she is making to mount an argument are nonsensical. She also told the press club, quote, as the minister, when I meet with the voice for the first time, I will say, bring me your ideas on how to stop our people from taking their own lives, end quote. Now, this of course begs the question, why she needs to wait two years for a voice to be enshrined in the constitution before asking. Clearly, no Indigenous Affairs Minister needs a voice enshrined in the constitution before she uh, can find out why people are tragically killing themselves. We're being played for mugs and, most, and the most vulnerable are suffering as a result. Well, hello, it's uh, great to have your company. I'm Lyle Shelton, the National Director of the Family First Party. In just a moment, I'll speak to the brand new CEO of the Australian Christian Lobby, an organisation I was privileged to serve for 10 years. Michelle Pearce has hit the ground running and she is going to be a force to be reckoned with. You won't want to miss my chat with her in just a moment. Kiralee Smith joins me as usual to discuss the good news that's come out of England where puberty blockers for treating gender-confused children have been banned. The question uh, this begs uh, here in Australia is why are these off-label drugs still being used here on vulnerable children? Also joining me is religious freedom expert, the Reverend Dr. Mike Bird, to discuss those chilling images of the cross of Christ being pulled off Calvary Hospital in Canberra after the forced takeover by the ACT government. All that and more uh, coming right up. Don't touch that dial. But first, in a draconian move first endorsed by the Liberals, Labor has introduced legislation allowing the government to police what it sees as online misinformation and disinformation. This means material on platforms like ADHD's website or blogs like Family First could be censored by the government if they are deemed uh, to harm someone or even harm the environment. Now, harm is defined as uh, hatred 
on the basis of ethnicity, nationality, race, gender, sexual orientation, age, religion, or physical or mental disability. Harm to the health of Australians and to the environment is also captured. This, of course, is subjective, and the radical left's view of harm is very different from mainstream Australians. Their view of harm is anything which disagrees with their view of the world. It's a great way to suppress debate, just label anything you disagree with as harmful, and have their material taken down off the internet. It's quite simple. It sure beats the intellectual effort required to defend one's position. Under the legislation, which comes back to Parliament early next month, the Australian Communications and Media Authority will have unprecedented powers to censor online content. For example, if ACMA thinks that by fighting for parents' rights, the likes of, say, Family First, is harming gender-confused children, it, it could order our posts to be taken down. It could order ADH TV's videos to be taken down. This is the biggest attack on freedom of speech since Australia was founded. Apart from the Sky After Dark and the Australian newspaper, media who are supposed to be the bastions of free speech in this country are largely disinterested in the story. Family First, of course, believes in freedom of speech and freedom of the media, including of online media platforms. The growth in alternative media outlets is obviously why the Labor government wants to crack down. Let's at least hope the Liberals have seen the error of allowing their previous communications minister, Paul Fletcher, to endorse the ACMA proposal, which has now been worked up into legislation that now that Labor is in government. The public has until August 6 to make a submission opposing this outrageous attack on free speech. Every one of us needs to lodge a polite but clear submission today at this government website, which is now on your screen. Take a screenshot of it and please go online and lodge a submission uh, and, and express your objection to this. We must speak up while we can. Well, it's an honour today to have the new CEO of the Australian Christian Lobby, Michelle Pearce, join me. I had the privilege of working at ACL for 10 years, and it is an organisation that I feel very passionately about. And I can't say how pleased I was when I heard the news that Michelle was taking up the role. Now, Michelle and I worked uh, together under ACL's founder, Jim Wallace, as part of a nationwide team. Uh, she was ACL's Western Australian director as a very young woman and young mum. She did a terrific job running large pre-election events uh, with the WA Premier and the then opposition leader and often appeared in the Western Australian media and was a relentless campaigner for the human rights of the unborn and for the rights of girls and women to be protected from attempts to legalise the sex trade. It was the Liberal Party um, under the then Attorney General Christian Porter, who went on into the federal parliament later, who was trying to legalise the exploitation of young women through state-sanctioned brothels at the time. Uh, for the past five years, Michelle and her husband, John, have been pastoring a Pentecostal church in London, but have sacrificed all of that to return to Australia and take up this role. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lyle, for having me. It's, it's really great. Thank you so much. Mm. Well, Michelle, many people, um, uh, I think, you know, don't know you, um, certainly Western Australians will, but uh, please tell us a little bit about your faith, your family and your professional background. Yeah, sure. I'll start with my family. Most importantly, I have uh, three amazing school-age children. I've actually been married for 21 years. Um, I'm not yet 40. Uh, so if you do the maths, that means I got married quite young. 
And um, uh, regarding my faith, it's, I mean, it's central to, to everything I do. Um, it's, it's absolute priority above all else. And uh, I made the commitment to follow Christ when I was a child, and I've really never looked back. And it really is that by faith that forms that foundation for everything that I want to do in the Australian Christian lobby and in the world of politics. And and it comes really from that conviction that our God is good and our God is perfect and he has such a good plan for humanity. And when we go away from that is, uh, is, is when that ends in societal harm and injustice. And so when I even think about professionally and my career, and, and it's always been informed by that and having that conviction that we can bring change. And, and when I went to university, I actually studied sociology and I thought, well, this isn't practical enough. I'd like to do something a bit more practical. And so I changed my degree to public policy. And that's when I started to get that heart and that stirring to be involved in influencing politics. And so after that, so as when you talk professionally, uh, my first job was with the Australian Christian Lobby, as you mentioned, as the WA State Director. And uh, what an introduction into the world of politics and lobbying on, like you said, the prostitution campaign and a whole lot of other issues that were going on at that time. Um, and and I've just really always felt that calling and that drawing towards bringing change into that area. But my life really has been a mix of working in politics, working for the church, um, and and uh, always holding those two together, a love and a passion for the church and what the church is called to do, but also a passion for influencing politics at the same time. Ah, fantastic, mm. Michelle. Um, Michelle, how hard was it for you and for your husband, John, and the kids to um, answer the call to come back to Australia and take up uh, the job at ACL? Yeah, I mean, we it was hard because we, we really loved our London church. Mm. Uh, we spent five years there building it from scratch. And by the time we left, uh, it was over 200 people, a multicultural, thriving church in the heart of London. As anybody's been involved in ministry, you know, the kind of family that you build, that team culture that you build when you're when you're heavily involved and, we, you know, always having people over our house. And we built our community there. And so to leave London was a sacrifice in terms of letting that go. Um, but we just know that God's faithful and somebody else has been raised up to take that on and to nurture it. Uh, but when we receive the you know, opportunity to come back to Australia and fight on these battles, you know, considering the state of the nation and uh, the state of politics, um, the amount of change that's needed in Australia, uh, we couldn't ignore that. And after prayer and my husband and I just really considering it deeply, we, we decided that it was what God wanted us to do. And so we made that trip back to Australia. Uh, and, you know, we're really grateful to be back here. Mm. Yeah, look, um, I, I, for one, uh, as I said earlier, I was just thrilled when I heard the news and uh, I just appreciate the sacrifice you're making because having known you, uh, I can see that the sort of leadership and the passion that you have is exactly what Australia needs at this time. Um, tell our audience a little bit about your vision for ACL. You've only just stepped into the role last month. Um, where do you want to take the organisation in, in its next phase of its development? Yeah, I mean, coming back to Australia and seeing what's been happening in the last five years and the, the downward spiral on, on all the issues, uh, the, the, the thing that just stirs in my heart and I just feel so convicted about, as we all do at the um, Australian Christian Lobby and people in various uh, roles in this space, is just that we absolutely have to change uh, the nation. And that sounds big, but we, we, we need to change culture because it's heading in such a dangerous direction at the moment. And so whilst I'm forming my the strategy for ACL in terms of how we're doing that and continuing to progress and move in the area of political effectiveness. What's stirring in my heart is the fact that we absolutely must change laws. 
Uh, and by, you know, through, by, by doing that, we must change our culture as well so that there's that push behind this change of public policy. Um, but really, it's not ACL that's going to do it alone. It's not me. It's not you. It's not any single entity. But it really is the church that God's called as the vehicle and the mandate of change. And so part of the strategy going forward and, and what's in my heart is to really partner with the church to stir this mandate that change really is possible and to stir that compassion and that conviction that we must do it because of the harmful ideologies that you know, La, that are being taught through our schools. That, that This isn't just our right-wing agenda, but these sorts of ideologies are harming children yep. uh, for the sake of, you know, the unborn and the, um, the, the, the 100,000 abortions uh, we have in our nation. I mean, and for the freedom of the church to be able to preach the gospel, there are so many issues that we have to be on the front foot on. And and we as um, organisations, as individuals, but as the church, uh, must believe that change is possible and form our strategies and, and move forward to be able to do that. Yeah, ab absolutely. You've, you've painted a very big vision there, and I totally agree. We, we've got to see change. Um, you, you would know as well as I do that many Christians are and quite understandably feel despairing about the state of the nation and the downward spiral that you mentioned. How do we maintain a hopeful disposition uh, in the face of all this? And what do you say to Christians who, who perhaps might want to give up or just wait for the end times, um, just to get a little bit of uh, controversy in terms of eschatology? Uh, but uh, how do you uh, keep uh, a disposition of hope in the midst of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think I was like every other person that didn't have hope in terms of when you see abortion, do you think, well, can this really ever change or have we just crossed that line as a society? But what really encouraged and inspired me was the story of um, Britain back in the 17 and 1800s when it was worse than it was now. You know, there was brothels on every street corner. There was incredibly unjust uh, laws and children were being abused and, and used in factories, schooling and hospitals uh, weren't as they are now. And, and William Wilberforce and his team at the Clapham sect, they got together they strategized, they, and it was the time of the Wesleyan revival as well. So there was a move of God in the nation as well. And we can see at that point that with a strategy and with effort and, you know, moved by the spirit of God, that the nation did change. It did shift. Church attendance went up. Laws changed. Britain became a more just nation because of what happened back then. And I believe if change happened then, then it completely is possible now. Uh, but I think where we fail is when we don't believe it can happen. And when we don't have that faith or belief, then we actually aren't going to be successful in our efforts. So when we're inspired by that kind of hope that it is possible, and it did happen previous times in history, uh, it can happen today. I uh, couldn't agree with you more, Michelle. That's music to my ears. Uh, I'm glad. It seems like you were paying attention in many of those uh, old ACL staff retreats we used to have uh, back in the day. But, uh, uh, we've, we've, Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, look, you, you're dead right about the Wesleys. Um, that was a spiritual revival, but it, it overflowed into a, a massive social and political revival, probably the, the likes of which the world probably hasn't seen before, and we certainly need it again. Now, good on you, Michelle. Um, yeah. Michelle, you, you've been battle-hardened. We mentioned some of the fights that you were involved fighting Christian Porter back in the day on legalising brothels successfully at the time. Um, obviously, you've been uh, in the pro-life cause for a long time, uh, fighting with um, 
uh, ACL and others. Now, during your time as a staffer, this was after ACL, before you went to London, you worked for the Honourable Nick Goyran, a fantastic member of the Western Australian Upper House with the Liberal Party, and you helped him unearth figures which proved that babies were being born alive after abortion in Western Australia, after botched abortions, and simply left to die. We've been talking about this on the program here in the last few weeks. Now, in your first week on the job at ACL last month, you fronted a Senate inquiry looking at this very issue. Let's take a look at the clip. Disputable fact that hundreds of Australian babies survive abortion, are born alive but left to die, often, often in harrowing circumstances, is without a doubt one of the most significant human rights issues of our day. Now, now, Michelle, how rewarding was that for you personally, and I'm sure for Nick, to see this issue come into the light of a Senate inquiry after all those years of hard work getting this into the public's attention? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we really did see God's providence on it. And I was in communication with Nick and he was cheering me on from afar. It really was him that led the way with this burden and exposing the issue in Western Australia. And so it was great that I was able to come, you know, in my first week, but having been informed all those years ago by working in Nick's office to expose that this was happening in Western Australia. Uh, but we, we're yet to see the outcome of the Senate inquiry. And so although it was good to be involved, really, the, 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 the joy is going to be if we do see justice provided to these babies that were born alive and, and then left to die in harrowing circumstances. So, so please, um, you know, be in prayers for those that are watching that this Senate inquiry does move forward and the, the bill is passed. Mm. Yeah, no, you're dead right. Obviously, we need to see action. But I think you and I have been around long enough just, just to know that it got to that point where that was able to be ventilated in public. Um, that is a huge achievement. No one should underestimate that. And that's the power of this persistence and not giving up that you're talking about. And uh, obviously, we need to keep that up. Michelle, in, in your latest yeah. e-news to ACL supporters, I noticed that you mentioned um, there's been a big breakthrough in the United Kingdom regarding age verification with new legislation to protect children from pornography online. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, while I was in the UK, I was consulting for a charity called CEASE, which is the Centre to End All Sexual Exploitation. And they were involved in lobbying the government to um, include these age verification measures within their online safety bill. And just heard news last week that the House of Lords has included age verification, which is absolutely fantastic um, because it means that children can't access pornography at the moment. It's just one click away. And it's, uh, you know, children are being harmed every single day in, uh, by watching this harmful content. So this provides a stop to be able for them to be able to access that. And it's not just a simple click if you're over 18. There's measures that will prevent them uh, from accessing it. Just like in Australia, we have those measures on gambling sites to stop children from accessing that. Now in the UK, it's also um, on their pornography sites. Yeah, again, this is another reason why we should never give up. We, you and I were told in our days at ACL that uh, this could never happen. It was opposed by the radical left and the libertarian right, saying you can't censor the internet, etc. etc. But here in Australia, there's been some movement. A parliamentary committee three years ago looked into this, and this is what uh, that committee said in its final report, and I quote, the committee is concerned uh, to see these issues addressed as quickly as possible. As such, the committee recommends that this work be completed and presented to the government for decision within 12 months of presentation of this report, end quote. Now, I believe that uh, was uh, fairly recent. I think you've put that quote 
from the parliamentary report on your website. Why do you think our politicians don't champion this, even when they've had a parliamentary inquiry, seen the evidence of the harm that's being done to children? Why do we have this failure of leadership in our country? Yeah, and there's been plenty of pressure on them to continue to do this and to see them make this recommendation in 2020 when it was meant to something to be done by 2021 is absolutely tragic. And it's not tragic only because of the leadership. It's tragic because as the years go on, more and more children and teenagers are being harmed by this content. And, and this kind of content that they're seeing is harmful for their soul. It, it's destructive. Yeah. It destroys the way that men see women and it destroys relationships and their future marriages. Uh, this is incredibly harmful for the family and for the health of our society. And, you know, it is outrageous that just in one click away, children can access hardcore pornography. And as I said before, the majority of teenagers have seen this. And, you know, having it so easily accessible is, is really harmful for our culture. So currently we're running a campaign, um, at ACL, called the One Click Away Campaign, which is calling on the government to follow suit, uh, that we need to implement these same age verification measures as has been done in the UK, as has been done in some states in the US as well. And uh, the great thing is, Lyle, is this will have a harmful impact on the porn industry. Yeah. Um, because a lot of their customers are these young people. And so by cutting this here, um, it's going to harm the multi-billion dollar porn industry. Yeah, no, mm. that's a good thing. Well, well, Michelle, if they can do it in the UK and if we can get a parliamentary committee in Australia to say that something needs to happen here, surely we're on the cusp of it and encourage people to go to ACL's One Click Away campaign and sign that petition and send a message to our politicians to act. Michelle, just finally, um, again, on, on another matter of, of hope, again, that uh, just picking up from uh, material you've put out in your excellent E! News this week, you mentioned um, that the US Supreme Court has set a precedent for free speech uh, last week, uh, protecting the rights of business owner Laurie Smith in the case of 303 Creative versus Alenia. Uh, the court affirmed that she cannot be forced to create websites supporting same-sex weddings against her religious beliefs. That's a pretty big breakthrough. We're seeing some real signs of hope, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We, we hear these stories quite consistently come from the US and even the UK. And we can be encouraged that, you know, it doesn't seem to be happening here yet, but the tide can turn. I really believe people will see sense in these sorts of things, the sense in free speech, the sense in blocking children from seeing harmful content, even the sense that a child in the uterus is a living human being that deserves rights. All these things are not our right-wing Christian views. These are, these are common sense issues backed by science, backed by research. And so, you know, if we just remain committed to it, we keep the pressure on government, we form our strategies, um, that things can shift in our nation too, as we are seeing internationally. Um, so, you know, I think that's the real, the, the, the conviction that I bring into this, Lyle, is that there is hope. There's yeah. hope. We see elements of it overseas and we've got to grasp those, you know, elements of hope and say, OK, if it can happen there, it can happen here and not get too downtrodden in our hearts or in our views. Uh, but just to really believe our God is big and he is um, the, the, the king of all kings. And we're coming from that uh, as Australian Christian lobby, from that Christian perspective. And if we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we've got to actually believe that his kingdom can come in our nation, in our parliaments, and his will can be done. And that results in justice and freedom and liberty and all of the good things that God's intent is for our nation. 
Well, Michelle, you're off to an amazing start in your first uh, month or two at ACL. I'm sure my audience will agree with me um, that uh, it's just fantastic to have you back here in the fight, and I'm sure people will be looking to see, looking forward to seeing a lot more of you in the days ahead. Uh, Michelle, how, how can people follow your work? Yeah, sure. Well, um, the best thing to do is to sign up to receive our, our weekly news, and they can do that on our website, acl.org.au. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter on AC Lobby and our Australian Christian Lobby Facebook page as well. And my personal Instagram is Michelle Pierce ACL. Uh, so there's plenty of ways to keep in touch. Fantastic. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for giving of your time today and joining us here on ADH TV. Yeah, thank you for having me, Lyle. Well, there's been some good news in the battle to protect children from the harmful gender conversion therapy practiced by child gender clinics. The National Health Service in England has banned the prescription of puberty blockers to children as part of LGBTIQA plus attempts to change children's biological gender. Joining me now to discuss this is our, our regular commentator, Kiralee Smith of Binary. Kiralee, welcome to the program again. Um, what are the English getting that Australians are not getting? Well, I think the first thing is they got sued and uh, that's always uh, motivation to rethink what you're doing. And, uh, you know, we, we've referenced the Kira Bell case in the past and uh, there was also an unnamed mother in that case and they proved that uh, young people were giving, being given affirmation treatments, which is a misnomer, a falsehood. It doesn't affirm anything except a lie. And uh, they were successful in suing the NHS and the gender clinic in the UK. And uh, that's yet to happen here in Australia, but I don't think it's very far away. And uh, it, it's very interesting the way so many um, health practitioners and politicians in particular are reluctant to have an inquiry into these gender practices because I think they know I think they know exactly what the outcome will be, and that is it's not, it, it's not kind, it's not helpful, and it's not beneficial to medicalise children who are going through adolescence, having the normal confusion that uh, everyone experiences, and then medicalising that in a way that uh, causes irreversible harm. So I think there's some big differences, but I think that those things, uh, those changes are just around the corner. Yeah, they are certainly very encouraging. I, I didn't even know this had happened uh, until I saw it uh, on Sky News. Um, shouldn't mention the other network here on ADH TV. But uh, to her credit, Peter Credlin picked this up and I Googled it and the story is about a month old. Uh, so no media had, had jumped onto this, that puberty blockers, I'll say it again, have been banned in England. And um, this is what the National Health Service, the famous NHS, which is venerated by all English people, it said this, it says, there is not enough evidence to support their safety or clinical effectiveness as routinely available treatment, end quote. Now, Kiralee, that's extraordinary. They're saying that these drugs, which children in Australia are being given today at gender clinics in Melbourne and Brisbane and Newcastle and Sydney are not safe or effective. Uh, that's in black and white in a report by the NHS, and yet they're still freely available off-label here in this country. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, I'll make two comments there, Lyle, and one is that they are off-label. They have not been studied, uh, rigorously tested, and there are, we don't know the outcomes when dishing out these 
uh, medications to children uh, for purposes that they've never been designed for. And also, you know, we've got the, the case here in Australia of Dr Gillian Spencer, who was stood down as a senior psychiatrist at the children at the Brisbane Children's Hospital for questioning this exact protocol. And uh, rather than uh, engage and uh, listen to a very highly qualified and experienced health practitioner, they've stood her down and tried to silence her. But I'm happy to say, Lyle, I know that there is a movement going on now uh, of medical practitioners who are going to put their names to an open letter and to uh, demand that there is an inquiry into these practices because too many children are being harmed in this process. Well, that, that's fantastic news, uh, Kiralee, and, and, you know, breaking news for our audience. Uh, you heard it here first on uh, today's show on ADHD. There will be an open letter by medical practitioners calling for a UK-style review, um, and it's it's much needed. Kiralee, um, you know, I, I've worked as a journalist in a previous life. I did a journalism degree. We were taught that a running story is something which journalists pursue when it's unresolved, and uh, surely if there's a running story that should be pursued and investigated, is this one of puberty blockers being banned in the UK, but not here. Um, Kiralee, uh, and we just want the media to do their job. Uh, Kiralee, you said um, this week uh, on the uh, Binary blog, which is an excellent place to go to for content uh, on this uh, issue, that several female athletes uh, have begun speaking out against biological males pl playing in their sport. And uh, you document a number of these in America, but also um, there was this from the Women's Action Alliance Canberra, uh, caught my attention. They wrote, quote, a few weeks ago was the first time I played against a male player without anyone asking if I agreed to that. Now, Kiralee, it's shocking that a woman has to say this, uh, but this is courage, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I expect that more female athletes will speak out in the coming months. Um, but it is very disturbing that women are just being told to be quiet, that they're being threatened with sanctions, they're being threatened with expulsion from their own sports if they oppose biological males uh, competing in the women's division. And uh, look, we, we've heard so many instances of this, but it is very encouraging um, that these women from the Canberra Hockey Association are speaking out. But you do notice that uh, so few are prepared to put their names to it because the ostracisation is real, the bullying is real. Uh, they their, their jobs, their families and their sports are threatened if they speak out. And that's a really unacceptable position to be in in 2023 when we have spent decades decades, if not centuries, uh, trying to give women a voice and now it's just being taken away from us like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great to see these women speaking out. And, and you've mentioned um, the case of uh, Deborah Ackerson, uh, the weightlifter, Australian women's weightlifter, Olympian Commonwealth Games um, uh, uh, athlete. And uh, I heard her speak last week in New Zealand at uh, Bob McCroskey's family first conference there, just about how she was threatened to be put out of the Commonwealth Games Village in 2018 if she dared spoke about the biological male Laurel Hubbard competing against her at those Commonwealth Games. It's um, it's shocking, but it uh, looks like the dam is bursting. Kiralee, um, there's been big discussion this week about a tweet of yours. Um, you tweeted this, uh, men cannot breastfeed. They try to mimic what only women can do. They do it for themselves not for the sake of the baby. This is child abuse, end quote. Kiralee, that was really well said. What motivated you to post that on social media? 
Well, look, this is a story of a, a male who identifies as trans in the UK. He was first featured on a news uh, report uh, washing the dishes and talking about the high, the increasing cost of water and he was described as a mother and he was called out uh, by a politician in the UK and others saying, well, you know, yes, water prices are rising but you're not a mother, you're a man. And then he responded with the tweet of him breastfeeding his baby, which honestly made me feel really sick and disturbed me. I deal with this sort of content day in and day out, but that was just like a straw that broke the camel's back for me, Lyle, to see a man indulging his sexual fetish uh, using an innocent, vulnerable child is just beyond beyond words. I don't have anything left to describe, uh, not just the utter insanity, but the danger of this. Breastfeeding experts have spoken out and, uh, you know, it's, it's not rocket science, but it is science. <laughs> the mother's milk cannot be replicated by a drug-induced male who thinks he's lactating, which he's not. It's not mother's milk at all. And then, uh, you know, doing this to a child who can't consent and uh, is is lacking that connection with its own mother uh, and all for the sake of him uh, trying to validate that he feels like a woman. It's it's obscene. Yeah, it is obscene, Kiralee. Um, uh, I think these transgender activists call it chest feeding. Uh, they're, they're trying to re, uh, redefine one of the most beautiful uh, aspects of the mother-child relationship. Um, they're, they're secreting, these men who claim to be women, they're, they're really secreting some sort of synthetic chemical to the child. I mean, it really is an abuse, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's complete and utter self-indulgence. It's all about their own feelings. It's got nothing to do for the welfare and the benefit of the child. Uh, you know, other uh, photos later surfaced of him um, wearing nipple clamps um, as a sexual fetish. It's something, you know, that is a documented fetish that people have. Um, it's, it, it's just vulgar and obscene that a man can indulge his own fantasies at the sake and expense of a, a, an innocent and vulnerable baby. Yeah, well, good on you for calling that out, Kiralee, and I'd encourage people to follow you on Twitter. You're very active there during the week, uh, most days, or most days, all day, um, but it's very informative and, and passionate commentary. Uh, also uh, on your Twitter this week, I noticed that um, you tweeted about the online gift retailer Etsy, uh, who have joined the ranks of those saying the dictionary definition of women is hateful. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, I have a towel uh, that says woman, adult, human, female, with a couple of hashtags on it um, from someone very close to me who uh, designed these towels. And uh, they were given notice that that uh, listing was removed because it was a prohibited uh, statement, something that you can't say on Etsy, uh, which is just incredible. And after I tweeted uh, that statement, I received a barrage of comments from people showing me other things that are available on Etsy, such as kill turfs, um, turf repellents, uh, horrible things about women like myself who oppose um, males appropriating female stereotypes. So Etsy have chosen, I believe very misogynistically, uh, to remove an item that's just a plain definition, it's not hateful, it's just factual, in favour of uh, other very hateful materials that they're happy to sell. Yeah, um, and for those who don't know, TERF is trans-exclusionary exclusionary, radical feminist. Uh, radical feminist. Right, and that, that apparently is what you are, uh, Kiralee, a radical feminist who excludes uh, males who are appropriating female gender. Um, 
the mind boggles. Yep. Well, well Kiralee, just before you go, um, uh, I want to keep the issue of your legal battles before our audience. Um, I want people to realise that the process is the punishment. Um, you've had, got two apprehended personal violence orders against you, a case in the New South Wales uh, Discrimination Board. Any updates uh, on any of those matters? No, it's uh, moving very slowly, of course. Uh, we have some hearing dates, one in September, one in October for the uh, applications for the APVOs, but the vilification complaints, I'm not sure what's happening with those. It's still with the commissioner. So, uh, you know, I'll say it over and over again. I will not back down. I will not be compelled to lie. And I will stand firm on the fact that males are not female. Absolutely. If people want to um, contribute to your legal defence, and this is this is going to be something I know this from personal experience. This is likely to drag on for years now. Um, they are they do this. They use these flawed laws, which sadly our politicians don't have the courage to change, uh, to punish people like yourself and to try and send a chill through the body politics so people don't speak out. What can people do if they want to help uh, finance your legal defence? Because you're up for a very expensive legal battle, and I know this uh, from my own personal experience. How can people support you? Thank you, Lyle. Uh, you can go to uh, binary.org.au forward slash donate. Uh, we've had many generous donors and supporters contribute to our legal fund, which is just so humbling and overwhelming. And I'm so grateful for that. But as you said, this is likely to go on for years. And uh, we want to continue to build that fund to make sure that the costs are covered and also to help other uh, people who may end up in this situation because there's an increasing number who are facing legal battles. And so we think it's really important uh, to fight this lawfare and there should never be a reason that people can't defend themselves in court because of money uh, when, you know, such truth is at stake. Yeah, that's right. None of this passes the pub test, so to speak. And I'm sure when ordinary Australians realise that uh, radical LGBTIQA plus political activists are using the law like this against people like you and myself and, and so many others that we've talked about on this program, uh, that there will be a demand for change. Um, uh, sadly, our politicians are behind the curve. Kiralee, um, as always, thank you so much for joining us again this week. And we look forward to chatting again next week. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Well, this past weekend, the militantly secularist Labor Greens government in the Australian Capital Territory took ownership of the Catholic-owned Calvary Hospital after ramming a bill through the unicameral Legislative Assembly to compulsorily acquire it. Now, I've never seen a more confronting metaphor of the decline of Christianity in Australia than the images of the crane removing the cross of Christ from the Calvary Hospital building at the weekend. Academic Dean and lecturer in New Testament at Ridley College in Melbourne, Reverend Dr. Mike Bird, has written one of Australia's seminal works on religious freedom. It's called Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. Mike joins me now. Welcome to the program, Mike. Lyle, great to be with you and all of your audience. <laughs> Mike, um, what was your reaction to the sight of the cross being removed from a Catholic-owned hospital which had been forcibly taken from the church? I was deeply alarmed by it because this was a nakedly punitive action by an Australian territorial government. And I've seen similar things before in the former Soviet Union. Uh, and in China, where symbols of Christianity could be removed from both churches and uh, public buildings. And it was done. I mean, the acquisition of the hospital was done, uh, despite what the, the ACT government says, it was done because Calvary Hospital refuses to perform 
abortions and euthanasia. In other words, it was done because they refused to kill on behalf of the state. Yeah. Um, in, in your excellent book, uh, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, you argue that secularism should provide religious freedom for all. Uh, what's your advice to Christians who live in a jurisdiction like the ACT, where clearly there is no intention of providing religious freedom for all, particularly to faithful Christians who don't want to kill unborn babies uh, and the old and the vulnerable in hospital? Yeah, I think we need to realise we're living in a more post-Christian environment and we need to be good advocates for religious freedom, and that's religious freedom you know, for everyone. Uh, we also need to champion a good sense of secularism because a good sense of secularism would actually protect churches and um, institutions of faith from what the ACT government does. You know, secularism means we're, we don't want to live in a theocracy. We don't want to replace the governor general with a pope, ayatollah, or Dalai Lama. But the other side of secularism is that the government doesn't interfere with how you do religion and it doesn't take punitive actions against you because of your religion. In this case, the ACT has done the latter. They've done a, a punitive action against a community of faith because you know they won't kill babies in utero or euthanize the dying. And, and there was a very good article on this as it violating freedom of conscience uh, in all of places on the ABC by Dr. Joanna Howe of Adelaide University. And she provided a very good uh, explanation of how the ACT government's action uh, runs roughshed over some of the most basic freedoms, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And I think all Australians, whether you're left-wing or right-wing, you should be very concerned about any government taking punitive actions against a religious group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Dr. Joanna Howe, I certainly highly commend her. She's been a guest on this program and is one of the most uh, fearsome advocates for freedom and for the unborn. Um, Mike, you mentioned in, in your book that um, there should be uh, a fair and equitable settlement between religious freedom and secularism. Do you think that's possible, given that there doesn't seem to be goodwill on the side of so many of those that are militantly uh, advocating secularism, such as the uh, the Labor Green governments in the ACT. H how do we get this, you know, set this just and fair settlement when there isn't goodwill uh, or seemingly not goodwill from one side of the debate? Yeah, it is very difficult. In order to have a, a liberal democracy, to be a successful multicultural country, in order to have a fair go for everyone, you, you've got to have a, a certain basic understanding of the inherent good of political and religious freedom. And if you treat instead people of faith as either begrudgingly tolerated or enemies of the state, that does not bode well for the present or for the future of our civil and political liberties. And I'm, I'm very concerned, not just by this action, but by what it will embolden the ACT government to do next. Because, you know, I didn't see any bishops, you know, chaining themselves to their cross. I didn't see mass protests. The media was not in an uproar. And that means the ACT government knows we can get away with this. And they will embolden to do other things. I think the next thing they will do, logically, would be to start nationalizing Catholic and Christian schools, confiscation of the property of other religious organizations. I think they'll be emboldened to go further because that's what those sort of people always do inevitably. But I'm glad to say that there are, there are some political leaders across the country 
who don't necessarily share that aggressive disposition towards people of faith. And I'm glad to report that this very week, the uh, Federal Labor Party has endorsed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article uh, 18, as the bar of religious freedom in the country. So that's at least one good piece of um, good news, despite some bad news coming from the ACT government. That's interesting, Mike. I hadn't heard that piece of news. Obviously, I'm aware of that Article 18 um, document, uh, the, the clause in the uh, UN Charter. It's a very, very good uh, proclamation of what religious freedom should be. Just tell us a little bit more about that. It sounds like some breaking news there. Yo, I, don't, I don't have the details. I heard it from Freedom for Faith, which is a very good yep. religious freedom advocacy yeah, organization. And they've said the at the the federal labor at their level, their discussions for their sort of, you know, party platform and policy does include a, a fairly healthy account of religious freedom. Now, the question is, will they follow through with it? Because yeah. uh, in the ACT government, technically, something similar to the uh, the International Covenant is technically on the books in the ACT, but it didn't stop them from taking their punitive actions at Calvary Hospital. But yeah. there is a difference between, I think, the attitude towards religion in the Victoria uh, state government, which is ALP, the, the ACT government, which is a Greens ALP uh, coalition, and in other jurisdictions, whether that's in um, South Australia or at the federal level. So uh, the ALP uh, are not monolithic when it comes to their approach to religious freedom. And certain jurisdictions, Victoria and the ACT, are certainly more militant uh, or less benign in the brand of secularism that they're championing. Yeah, that's right. No, well, that's that's interesting. Um, it sounds like freedom of faith Freedom for Faith have picked up on uh, some posturing ahead of the ALP National Conference, which is next month in Brisbane. There's a number of um, very concerning um, motions on the books for that conference, including uh, free abortion, uh, so the uh, public taxpayer-funded abortions. Um, uh, and, of course, that would have all sorts of implications for religious freedom for nurses and midwives who uh, the uh, the women's uh, arm of the ALP want to see prescribing abortion pills and the like. Uh, so, so clearly, you know, as you say, uh, it depends whether or not uh, the principles of Article 18 actually find their way down into the, the practice of how the ALP uh, perform in government. And, um, and, of course, that's the big worry, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Uh, it's like it's one thing to have it on the books like the ACT government allegedly does. But in practice, it's it's something completely yeah. different. Yeah. And, and um, you know, we've seen uh, in your state of Victoria last year, the Andrew Thorburn incident, um, a, a Christian CEO of the Essendon Football Club uh, sacked within 24 hours because of his uh, church's views on uh, completely mainstream Christian views on human rights for the unborn. Um, you know, the ALP's lip service to Article 18 didn't help him, did it? Uh, no, it didn't. And it was it was a terrible situation. And I found it uh, quite frightening because Andrew Thorburn, I mean, he was the CEO of the National Bank. He was very happy to oversee its inclusive hiring policies, treating all of its employees of, of all faith and none of every sexual orientation uh, fairly. And, and th this was the thing. He said nothing wrong. It wasn't like Israel Flau, who who said some things that you know got people in uproar. I mean, that's that's another story. He didn't do anything. Uh, he wasn't burning a gay a gay pride flag or anything like that. Uh, it was purely guilt by association. He he belonged to a church that believed what Christians have believed for about two thousand years on things like you know abortion, 
family, marriage, and sexuality. And the the offending sermons were preached at the church before he was even a member. And he said he didn't necessarily agree with everything his church said, or maybe he wouldn't express it the same way. Uh, Yet despite that, he was given an ultimatum uh, by Essendon Football Club, and that was to resign from the board of his church or to resign as the CEO of Essendon Football Club. And there was a real funny interview the chairman did with the media. I mean, someone asked him, like, well, why didn't you ask him about his religion during the job interview? And the chairman said, oh, well, we we couldn't because it's illegal to do it. Yeah. But as soon as we found out about it, we acted. I mean, yeah. that, that that is just a smoking gun of recognizing the inherent Ill- illegality of what they did, which is why they had to settle um, out of court with with uh, Andrew Thorburn, and there has been there has been a genuine reconciliation going on between uh, Andrew Thorburn and the Essendon Football Club. The Essendon Football Club has recognised it did do wrong by him, and there is a good reconciliation process happening. But I'll tell you what's really concerning here is two things: guilt by association is always the weapon of tyrants. Whether we're talking about the show trials of 1930 Stalinism or even um, the Anti-American Activities Commission of, you know, 1950s McCarthyism, guilt by association is how tyrants do business. And the second thing we have to note is we're going to get increasingly similar things happening in the future. If there is a person who works in business or government and they sit on the board of a, a Christian school or a Christian church, I can guarantee you, and I know this for a fact, there are already processes underway uh, to see those people suspended from their job or dismissed based on their affiliation or membership in a religious organization. So until this is tested in court, we're going to see a lot more of these cases happening where people will make complaints about someone, not because of anything they've said, not because of anything they've done, but simply because of what religious faith they belong to. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a that's a real worry. I'm pleased to hear of uh, the reconciliation process with Andrew Thorburn. I hope that results in a full some public apology by the Essendon Football Club. Um, uh, I, I hope, um, Mike. Just one more really important religious freedom issue before we let you go. Um, the Australian Law Reform Commission has published a report, quite controversial, came out earlier in the year, uh, recommending limiting the freedom of Christian schools uh, and religious schools to employ staff who share their ethos. That report uh, has been kicked into the long grass by the Albanese government. It was uh, very controversial. They've uh, put it back to the end of the year, but it certainly hasn't gone away. Uh, How do you see that issue playing out? Uh, Will we see a situation where Christian schools will have their freedoms uh, restored and and allowed to continue operating as they, they always have in serving faith communities? I mean, this is one of the presenting issues of our age where faith communities intersect with education. And the problem is, on the one hand, I think we would all say a non-discrimination principle is a good thing. We don't want people being discriminated like Andrew Thorburn on the basis of faith. And similarly, um, you know, LGBT people should not be needlessly or unfairly discriminated against because of who they are or who they're married to something like that. So, you know, a non-discrimination principle for everyone is a good thing. But then we also have the issue of religious communities, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, whatever. They do have particular religious views about family, marriage, and sexuality. So what do we do when these two good things, uh, you know, 
come into confrontation with one another or when they intersect. So because non-discrimination is good, but institutions maintaining their religious identity is good. And what the ARLC was tasked with was finding a mechanism in which we can reconcile these fairly. So people are not unfairly burdened with the religious convictions of others, but religious institutions can maintain their identity and practice as a faith community. Uh, the ARLC wrote a um, report that, quite frankly, was it was appalling. And I would say the, uh, the people who composed that report would probably be entitled to a refund on their law degree because I don't think they learned them very good in, in what they did. Um, they showed no awareness of what really happens in religious education. They showed a, a complete absence of the knowledge of religion. You know, whether even whether you can have religious beliefs about sexuality, family, and marriage. I mean, even the very definition of religion that they're operating with, I found very problematic. Mm. The most concerning part of the um, of the report, uh, I would say, is that the whole document was premised on trying to get around, again, I'll say it, Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a very good, thick, and wholesome explanation of religious freedom. Um, the ALRC's report was basically the attempt to mitigate its influence or to circumvent it. So whenever they, they mention Article 18, they say, well, strictly speaking, Article 18 says you're, you're allowed to practice freedom of religion in community with others. Mm. But, or they would say, look, yeah, technically the Article 18 says, you know, you're entitled to religious freedom and education. But, and they were constantly yep. just trying to get around that article. And th there are times where you can limit freedoms on that. And the way you, you, you limit the freedoms is you refer to some principles called the Syracuse principles. So, for example, during a time of, of pandemic, yes, the... Um, the government is within its right to restrict religious gatherings because that's necessary for public health and safety. But there's very specific ways in which you you get around you get around that. And the way the ALRC got around it was not by appealing to the Syracuse principles. Instead, what they appealed to was anecdotes from other legal jurisdictions, and and, and that was just a really weird. Now I don't have a law degree but I know a bad legal argument mm -hmm. when I see one. And I think the, um, the ALRC needs to go back to the drawing board, get a new team of people who actually know something about religion, something about religious education, something about international law of religious freedom, get some people who actually seem to know what they're talking about and come up with a new attempt in a way that we can have a, a, a multicultural, diverse country where LGBT people, people of faith, can live side by side, cheek by jowl, without rubbing up against each other, either in lawfare or some sort of, um, you know, uh, proxy war or cultural war or something like that. I, I think it's a bad report, and I, I hope the Albanese government doesn't uh, accept it or act upon it. Mike, um, that's a, a particularly brilliant breakdown of the ALRC report and its flaws and, and failings. Um, uh, I think you do that incredibly well. Um, and uh, let's just hope that, as you've said, as Freedom for Faith reporting, that um, the ALP at their conference next month in Brisbane are taking a serious look at the ICCPR 
and Article 18 and what that means for religious freedom, because that does provide a way forward for all of us to live in harmony and tolerance together in our society. Uh, Mike Bird, um, where can people get a hold of your book, which I, I really commend. I think people have got to get across these religious freedom issues. No one explains it better than you. Um, where can they get a hold of religious freedom in a secular age? Yeah, you can buy it from a good Christian bookshop called kurong.com or you can get it somewhere like uh, amazon.com or anywhere where good books are sold. Fantastic. Well, Mike, uh, really appreciate you giving of your time uh, today here on ADH TV. Great to be with you, Lyle, and great to be with all of your audience. Well, that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to make ADH TV your go-to for commentary and analysis. This is the home of Australia's leading voices. The Family First blog, of course, contains regular political commentary, and you can follow me on Twitter at Lyle Shelton, on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be back streaming live next Friday at noon and always on demand right here on ADH TV. Thanks so much for your company. Until next week, keep speaking up.